Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Dave McKechnie, standing in this week for Chris Dooley. In November 2019, Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in ending the war with neighbouring Eritrea. One year later, Abiy has warned leaders in the country's northern Tigray region, which is home to some 5 million people, that the Ethiopian military is about to undertake the final phase of an offensive that began in early November. Many analysts fear that Africa's second most populous country might spiral into civil war. To look at the roots of this crisis and its significance, I'm joined on the line by Sally Hayden, who writes for the Irish Times from Africa and was reporting from Ethiopia in October just before this war began. Sally, it's now Thursday afternoon. First of all, can you tell us what has happened with this standoff around Tigray region in recent days and where are we at? Yeah, sure. So things are really escalating um, even more than they were. What happened was on Sunday, the government um, in Addis, like the central government of Ethiopia, gave a 72-hour warning to the Tigrayan leaders to surrender their capital city, Mekele, or else um, said that there would be no mercy, that they're going to surround the city and storm it, essentially. Um, And they said that they could use artillery to do that as well. Uh, I think it's worth saying, like, very very straight out like the very first thing that telecommunications have been cut from this region since the war was declared in on November 4th and so it is pretty impossible to get information and to confirm what is accurate so that means there's no internet there are no phone calls like anyone who has relatives there can't reach them people who have friends can't talk to them and so there's a there's very clearly an information war going on as well which means that it is difficult to ascertain exactly where the conflict is and exactly the state of it. And I imagine if you've spoken to relatives of people who are there, um, I imagine that's a particularly uh, traumatizing situation for them. Yeah, I'm in touch with a lot of people whose friends and relatives are there. And exactly, they just are terrified. They just don't know what's going to happen to them. Some of them have already fled to Sudan. So more than 40,000 people have crossed the border now into eastern Sudan. And at that point, some of them are able to make contact with their family members. But, you know, that can be a very long journey. And it looks now like the Ethiopian army are actually stopping people from crossing. The number of crossings have dropped from 7,000 a day to 700 a day. And that doesn't just mean that people can't escape. It means that we, you know, the relatives don't know what's happening to them. They they have no information. I was wondering, could you, would you be able to talk us through what's happened in, in recent months? There is a, something of a link uh, to the coronavirus pandemic when election, elections that were supposed to take place in August were postponed for a year. Um, can, you, can you talk us through what happened from that point and, and early November as well when this conflict began? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's worth actually at this point going back e- even further to say that Ahmed Abi the or Abi Ahmed the uh, Nobel Prize winning prime minister came into power in 2018 and has, you know, effectively been sidelining the TPLF, the Tigrayan politicians who before that were holding most power in the central government. So this is kind of a long running issue. Um, and they've been feeling sidelined. They've been complaining. Um, and they then went ahead with elections. So when the coronavirus pandemic broke out, 
Ahmed, um, Abiy Ahmed said that he was going to postpone the elections in Ethiopia, which were scheduled for August for a year. And the Tigray region said that they were going to go ahead with their elections. So the central government um, declared that illegal. They later said they were going to pull funding from the region. They said that the new leaders or the re-elected leaders shouldn't be um, recognized. And those elections went ahead in September. And at that time, there were already analysts kind of saying, well, is the Tigray region going to try and separate from the rest of Ethiopia or what's going to happen here? Like that was seen as a big move. But after that, I mean, things kind of bubbled along. Um, like there wasn't a big outbreak of violence, like some people had expected during the elections in September. And as you said, I was there for the entire of October and people were talking about ethnic tensions. They were talking about, um, you know, how this election had gone ahead. But I don't think I'd certainly never spoke to anyone who anticipated that there could be this outbreak of war so quickly. Uh, and the ethnic tensions in Ethiopia, where do they come from? Yeah, I mean, there are more than 80 different ethnic groups in Ethiopia and, you know, your ethnic group, like it, it can control a lot of your life, even down to just like the different festivals that you celebrate. Um, and then also obviously like which musicians you like, which politicians you like, you know, different people from your reason, region you might associate with more. Um, and there have been problems in the past. For example, there were big protests among the Oromo group before Abi came into power. Um, that was that there was a lot of unrest by Oromos and Abi actually is a Romo and it because it had been Tigrayans in charge and um, predominantly when he came to power that was seen as being like a big win for the Oromo tribe and they had been holding protests some of them had been massacred in the years before that like I even I met a lot of Oromos who were escaping to Europe because they said that they couldn't stay any longer in Ethiopia um, but now Abi kind of came to power and he had this idea that he was going to both celebrate unity and also celebrate diversity but you know this kind of concept is very vague when you have a country with more than 80 ethnic groups where people will perceive like different things perhaps as a slice on their tribe you know they might see us as they're being discriminated against or they're being you know sidelined or anything like that like if there's a problem it can come down to someone could say that that is because of the tribe that they are now you were writing in the Irish Times this week about your time there in October and you did say there's posters of Abby everywhere and and his election at the time was regarded as a, a, bre a breath of fresh air uh, why why was that what, what was the change there why was it such a, a breath of fresh air so Ethiopia had long been kind of a one-party state where there wasn't a lot of freedom of speech, there wasn't a lot of freedom of expression. And, um, you know, people, like I said, there had been protests, there had been unrest. Abiy came into power and he started saying, we're going to open up, we're going to, you know, allow there to be a lot more freedom. Um, and for me, I actually visited in 2015 when I was in Ethiopia and I remember people constantly kind of making allusions to the fact that they couldn't speak freely. Like I'd try and ask someone about something and they'd say, oh, I can't talk about that. I can't talk about that. And this time I did notice the difference that people seemed to be speaking more freely. But I mean, Abby, you know, in his first 
year he introduced these reforms but now obviously this conflict has started uh, I think a lot of people are saying that there's been more repression in the past year um, there are now being arrests of journalists arrests of political figures so there are concerns that it will return to how it was before Returning to, to the Tigray region, um, what do we know about the humanitarian situation? As you say, obviously, um, there's been a, an information vacuum, but but there have been some reports of, of a massacre in the region, uh, allegedly carried out by the TPLF. And um, do we know much about that? And, and I guess that has added further fuel to, to the conflict. Yeah, of course. So I think it was Amnesty International that first properly reported this massacre. It was in a place called Meikadra in western Tigray, and it happened on November 9th. And it was hundreds of people that were apparently killed. And again, like like everything, this has become the side of a information war. So the um, uh, this human rights organization that's affiliated with the government is saying that a Tigray youth militia was responsible for it, whereas refugees who have fled the region are saying that the Ethiopian troops were responsible for it. So again, it's just not clear. And even I know that foreign journalists have now visited the site and are saying the same, that it's it's not completely clear what happened. Now, the EU and others have warned of the danger um of this situation for the wider region. And uh, as you as you said earlier, we've also already seen tens of thousands of refugees fleeing uh, Ethiopia. What do we know of how this is uh, affecting that region? I know Eritrea has been dragged into the situation already. Yeah, and strangely, so Eritrea and Ethiopia have had a long border war, which is partially um, the peace deal that ended that is partially why Abiy won the Nobel Prize. So now you have Eritrea and Ethiopia aligned together against the Tigray region. But um, I'm sure that the listeners know, like Eritrea produces a large number of refugees because it is a dictatorship and it is, uh, they have pretty much like indefinite military service for young people um, as soon as they graduate school. And, you know, they've they've grown up in this state of constant militarization. And I think there was a hope when the peace deal was signed that maybe that might ease a bit. But now they have another war that they're involved in. And I've been hearing from Eritreans I know who have relatives in, in Eritrea still that um, that they have relatives who are being called up who had been decommissioned from the military. And another guy told me that his mother was being forced to cook food for the Eritrean army who are basically on the warpath. So again, yeah, there's a risk that this is going to really destabilize the entire region. The other thing that's worth saying is that there are um, around 100,000 Eritreans living in refugee camps in the Tigray region and the UN has said that they've lost access to those camps, that there's no way for them to get in food or water or other resources. And again, that's another crisis that, you know, we don't even know what scale it's at because if there's no access, if there's no communication, then then it's hard to know what's happening. Uh, when you were in Addis Ababa in October, you uh, attended the trial of a couple of infamous people smugglers who, whose activities are linked to events you've reported on in Libya. Who who are those people and and uh, what are they accused of? Yeah, so um, yeah, it's a slightly unrelated story that I guess I'm also concerned is going to get overshadowed by the conflict. Um, but but again, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, so it, the 
there are two people smugglers, two human smugglers called Tawel D. Gwotem, um, who's nicknamed Walid, and Kadani Zacharias Habtamariam. And they're both infamous for working in Libya, basically bringing, um, you know, some some victims tell me like up to 30,000 people have passed through um, Libya because of them. But what they what they were doing is overseeing an operation that brought refugees and migrants to Libya, then held them in warehouses and they were tortured until they their families like raised huge sums of money. Sometimes they were given to another smuggler and tortured again until they raised that again. And then some of them were eventually allowed to go to sea and try and cross into Europe, but others ended up stuck in Libya or even going back to the country that they had come from. And these two men were arrested in February and March and are now on trial in uh, the Addis Ababa federal court. And I was attending those trials. That's why I was in Ethiopia. Um, so we're still waiting. We don't know when the verdict is going to be or what's going to happen with it. But yeah, obviously now the conflict is overshadowing everything. And how, Sorry, how many people were affected by, the, by this operation? So it's very hard to know for certain. But according to, I've, I've interviewed dozens of victims of them, and according to the estimates by the victims, they would say between them there were around 30,000 people. But, I mean, many of those, in the early years, many of those would have passed through Libya and then across to Europe quite quickly. But, um, but essentially what happened is that things, uh, it got a lot harder to make that journey because of, partially because of EU policy aimed at stopping people from crossing the Mediterranean. And at that point, these smugglers started holding refugees and migrants for a lot longer, torturing them, asking for more money, um, not letting them cross the sea and basically, you know, holding them for a year or up to two years. And yeah, there's a lot of victims, but the problem is the victims are mainly not in Ethiopia, but because Ethiopia is the country they were arrested in, they're being tried by um, the federal court who is not allowing remote witnesses because I think that's Ethiopian law. And so none of the victims that are outside the country can testify. So the number of witnesses is actually very small. And what do we know about about the current situation for uh, in in uh, Libya for for um, people uh, refugees essentially? Given that the, the the war situation has improved somewhat, has, has has the situation for them improved at all? No, I don't think it's that much better. I mean, I think that there's a lot of refugees still waiting there, hoping for evacuation, but the evacuations for, were halted because of the coronavirus pandemic. So they've only just restarted now. And I guess we're, we have to see like whether many people will benefit from that. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of desperation this year and, and a lot of people again trying to cross the sea. Sally, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Sally Hayden and thank you for listening. You're listening to the Irish Times.